I am thrilled to announce that An Actor Despairs is partnering with a wonderful CBD company called Kind Farms. Everyone out there has heard of CBD. I started taking it a few years ago when I first started getting sober and to help with my anxiety. Sadly, as one can do, I was overtraining in the gym, and a friend recommended a topical and a tincture to help with the pain. I tried it. It was okay. However, recently, I was introduced to a product that has really changed my life. Not only has it helped me with anxiety, but I am stronger than I have ever been. I'm able to carry out lifts my body used to prevent me from doing. Kind Farm products have single-handedly changed my life athletically and personally. They utilize 100% local licensed farmers, organic cultivation, and CO2 extraction for superior CBD. Kind Farms is turning CBD to a kind alternative to pharmaceuticals. Let's transform tobacco row into hemp row. If you want to get involved, please reach out. Together, we can make a difference. You can use my code RYAN10 for 10% off. You can find them on Instagram at Kind Farms Inc. All one word. That's K-I-N-D-P-H-A-R-M-S-I-N-C. And their website is kindfarmsinc.com. Once again, my code for 10% off is Ryan10. And now, let's get started with today's show. Welcome to An Actor Despairs. I'm your host, Ryan Perez. Today on An Actor Despairs, we have our first brother duo. We have Austin Ramsey, who came up in the speechwriting department under the Barack Obama administration, among many different people, writing speeches for them. And Julius Ramsey, who cooked his way up the editing circuit and started directing episodic television episodes. And we're here to talk about their film for Jason Blum's Into the Dark series, The Current Occupant. It's such an awesome film, and it really asks a lot of questions about what's going on with the madman in the White House, but also while being its own film. And I'm so grateful that they came on to talk, one, Austin being a writer and Julius being a director and just how they were able to come together as a duo to create material. They got a long road ahead of them, and I'm so excited. Here it is. Julius and Austin Ramsey, how are you doing? Welcome to An Actor Despairs. Doing great. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having us. Uh, it means a lot, man. You know, I, I, I'm a big fan of, you know, I'll, I'll say Jason Blum and what he's been able to do with kind of like, you know, under million dollar things and, and really stretch a budget because, you know, we'll get into this probably later in the podcast, but I feel like uh, middle American cinema is kind of diminishing. And it's it's either, you know, an NYU student film or Marvel's Spider-Man 2027, 20, <laughs> you know, and that in between so hard. And it's so awesome that you guys were able to make that together. And then you guys also did Midnighters as well, right? Yes, that's right. And uh, I'm, I, I, I read a lot about you guys and your work and I'm going to surprise you with things. But, you know, I, I, I think it's a really interesting film that you guys put out, The Current Occupant, which is available. So... For those listening, basically Blum decided to do his own kind of Black Mirror type thing for Hulu. Yeah, that's about right. Yeah, it's an mm-hmm. anthology series and each month they do a feature length film and each film has a theme for a holiday in the month, if you can yeah. follow all of that. Yeah. And so basically then uh, my question, you know, is 
you guys have been working together. I mean, your brothers, right? <laughs> <laughs> but so they that's tell correct. Me. So let, let, we'll, we'll just start from the beginning then. So you, where did you guys grow up? Uh, we grew up in North Carolina in a small town uh, called Asheboro. It's in the geographical center of the state, but um, it's maybe what else? In like 20, 25,000 people. Oh man, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm from Richmond, Virginia. So right okay. above you guys. Yeah. A couple hours. Oh, south. Yeah. We, my family's awesome. moved to Greensboro. So pretty in the same, oh. same neck of the woods. Critical airport. Um, yes. So then talk to me, you know, like in your childhood, what, where did the arts start to happen? Um, I mean, I think it was a lot of just, you know, make believe things as kids, like various games and um, dramas. Like we lived in a rural area. So a lot of like playing in the woods, um, that sort of thing. A lot of uh, movie watching. I mean, we had, I mean, I just remember VCR when we were young and like, you know, taping all kinds of films and um you the know, video was- spectrum was the name of the local video store that we got all of our videos from back when i mean before blockbuster oh, was a big thing so mine, mine was video 2000 ah yeah and so the video spectrum sign is still on a building in ashboro and my dream one day is to retrieve that sign it's about like 15 feet across and probably weighs a few hundred pounds um you know i I'm five years younger than Jute. And so at a very young age, I was being exposed to the kind of films that I should not have been exposed to because he was getting into, you know, the horror phase of his life. Um, and I was probably closer to like eight years old, nine years old at that time. So he'd rent something sneakily, get our grandparents to rent something for him. And then, um, then I'd have a chance to watch it for better or worse. Yeah, I'll, I'll actually tell you the trick, um, the way in. So my mom was very, you know, protective. She didn't want us to rent horror films, et cetera. I mean, because of the gore. And I mean, I was young at that point, maybe 11, 12, 13, somewhere in there. I read the book Helter Skelter in seventh grade. Um, a, a girl in school, like, had it and I read it. And that's not the kind of book a seventh grader should be reading. But um, I convinced my mom to let us rent Psycho because it was an Alfred Hitchcock film. So it was more artistic, you know, it wasn't like a slasher, like this gory thing. It was this, you know, classic of cinema. And after, you know, a lot of uh, back and forth, she finally agreed and like, let, let us rent Psycho. And then after that, it was a gateway into, well, you let us rent Psycho one. Well, now, I should be able to rent Psycho 2 in part three because I need to find out like what happened. And if yeah. you know anything about the Psycho films like um, two and three, you know, are not high art. They degenerate very quickly <laughs> and yeah. like straight up slasher films. And from yeah. that point on, you know, the gateway was open. I, but like it was all about I knew that if I could just get the one, you know, Psycho in there, like I could rent whatever I want. And then my poor brother, you know, was being exposed to that at probably far too young an age. Were, were you guys very close? Yeah, we have a middle brothers. So there were three of us. We're all, all very, very close. Yeah. That's amazing. So it was a good childhood for you. Yeah. Yeah. It was good. You know, it's, it's like everything. It's the, it's the childhood you have. Um, but yeah. yeah, no, it was very magical. And our mother, you know, she really encouraged a lot of, um, a lot of pursuit of the arts and, you know, computers, you know, we had, 
computer. We got one of the early, we had like a Mac, Apple Mac, like, a, no, we had the, no, the Apple II. We had the Apple yeah, II. GS. And then the GS and then the original Mac. I mean, so she was like well ahead of the curve with, um, you know, technology and that kind of thing. Yeah. But, um, and I'm thinking some of the old Sierra games that were, um, mm-hmm. I mean, for, for me, like just when you think about learning about story and whatnot, like this is before shoot 'em up. So it was the King's quest and the space quest games. And, you know, those were, those were, they're pretty oh, interesting God. games to like to play and grow up on. And leisure suit, Larry, don't forget him. Oh boy. And, and, and did you guys go to the cinema as, as brothers or as a family? Was that, oh, yeah. uh, my wow. mom took us. She actually, I was in second grade and this is one of the best things ever about my mom. Um, she pulled us all out of school to go see the first showing of Return of the Jedi. Wow. What a mom. Yeah. That's amazing. And do you feel like, yeah. do you, at, at, at what point do you, because, you know, you started doing an episodic work in reality television, right? I did. So, I mean, at, because of my background, like growing up in a little town in North Carolina and our family was in the textile business. I mean, this is, you know, they had a small textile mill that made a medical hosiery and, um, you know, that area, like it's just not a place where the idea of working in film and television is even a consideration. That's just not what people do. And so it wasn't until I got to college and I went to college in New Hampshire that I discovered um, I had a, uh, I enrolled in a film course my final semester of, of college and had a teacher who was really a mentor to me. And it was the first time I realized, oh, wait, there's, you could actually do this for a living. This is what people do. And for me, it was a real marriage, a synthesis of um, the humanities and the sciences, which were both things I was very interested in. And so from that point on, once I discovered that that's something I could do and I stayed at my college for a year, um, you know, doing short films and working in the film department, basically teaching myself the, um, you know, teaching myself filmmaking. Um, I never wavered. I mean, from that point on, that's all I ever wanted to do. And, and, and also, I mean, you know, doing the speech writing thing. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I should have said this at the beginning, you know, you, you worked under the administration of Barack Obama. Is that correct? And worked for the d- d- defense secretary in the Homeland or yeah. I don't want to, Several of them. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I, I feel like I was exposed and watched a lot of film growing up and it was certainly like in college, I would go see every movie that the, they screened. Um, we went to the same school five years apart. Both oh, which, which one? Dartmouth college. Oh, okay, cool. Um, you know, I wasn't involved to the level shoot was, I was more, uh, in, into politics, political science, and, um, was editor of one of the campus magazines. And after that, I went and worked for a national magazine in New York and then, um, started working as a speechwriter for Don Rumsfeld for about three months before he was fired, uh, after the midterm election in 2006. So I ended up being the deputy chief speechwriter for Robert Gates in both the Bush and Obama administrations. Um, and I spent a year in Afghanistan as well, running the writing team for David Petraeus when he was the commander. You say that so casually, like, yeah, I know, I know. Yeah. I mean, and it's just what's well, funny because it's like, it's, it's off topic. I guess it's on topic in that 
speech writings, like writing is writing is writing and there's different formats and versions of it, but it's like a skill set you develop. And certainly when I was at the Pentagon, like, I think that it was becoming a more serious hobby. I was reading books on screenwriting. I was reading screenplays. I think one of the most useful thing I'd do is like movies that I knew really well, I would pull them up on the TV and I have the screenplay in front of me and I'd be like reading and watching to understand how what was on page was getting translated on the screen because that's how you also start learning how to uh, write it. Yeah. How to describe something like the, the language of screenwriting is very different than a speech. Um, you know, the big overlap of course is that a speech is about how people talk. It's about getting inside someone's head and their voice. Yeah. And when you think about the dialogue component of a screenplay, all of that carries over just because it turns out the first time I wrote a screenplay, I was like, oh, I didn't realize it. But for five years, I've been intimately studying the spoken language, the rhythm of it, the cadence of it, everything about it. Yeah. I'm curious then, you know, because I don't think this is a, a stretch to say that, you know, like speech writing in, in some sense is screenwriting because you're writing for someone else's voice. No. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you're telling a story. It's a different type of story, but a really well-crafted speech has elements of just classic storytelling. I think another, you know, another element that that's I don't think many people think about is um, the foundation of speech writing is just research because you research yeah. so much, and you know you have ten good quotes and you pick the best one. And screenwriting is a similar thing. The research process is different. You might not find what you need in a book, but you're going out there. You're researching people, you're researching motivations, you're trying to understand like the world in which you're going to write in. So you have to, even if it's more like introspective, like you're thinking through your own relationships, you still have to do a lot more research, structure and plan everything out before you actually start putting words on a page. Yeah, yeah, that makes total sense. And then Julius, how did the, you know, talk to me about, you know, because I know North Carolina had, you know, maybe this was, you know, before your you're, you know, or too late for your time, I should say, but like they had that wonderful incentive program where Willington was, was kind of really booming there and they kind of fucked it up and, you know, oh, yeah. Atlanta, Atlanta stole it, you know, it could have been a real thing. So when yeah. you, when you decided to pursue this, where was the logical choice for you to go? Because I don't know if Wilmington was quite yet a thing. If that was, why um, not there or LA or New York? Well, what's interesting is actually, um, Wilmington, um, predated like their, their, their work in the film industry that predated the incentive programs. That was all Wilmington was the last, uh, the Mohican, right. And yeah, I mean, that yeah. was all happening like before incentives were a thing. So, yeah. you know, you're talking the, well, the it originally started uh screen gym studios, which was uh, Dino De Laurentiis. Um, yeah. they filmed Firestarter down in Wilmington and they did sleeping with the enemy. I mean, there were a lot of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles two, I believe shot down there. They, they filmed a lot there last of the Mohicans. And then the incentives came along. I think Georgia might've been the first state to do it. And North Carolina followed suit. And yeah. so it was all really booming. And then, um, you know, the re Republican like state legislature really with the rise of the tea party, they got rid of like all, the film incentives, which the problem is they reinstated them later, but for the studios, once those go, go away once, br even briefly, the studios lose confidence that it's going to be a permanent fixture. Yeah. So there were a couple shows like, um, 
Banshee and Under the Dome. Yeah, I just had Anthony Starr on two days ago. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. yeah, Yeah. yeah, yeah. They all had to pack up and and move. You know, they they had to go to Pittsburgh. Selling stuff off. I mean, I, I, I also had a lot of Homeland stars on the show. Same thing with Homeland. Yeah. It's like you yeah. never, you're never going to get it back. It's just like, you know, a relationship, someone cheats on you once. You're never, the, the trust is gone. And so, yeah. from the studio's perspective, really the only state that's remained, you know, a serious incentive and kept it consistent was, uh, is Georgia. Like, yeah. Louisiana had an issue too, where they, um, Bobby Jandala, I think, did something like, three or four years ago and it went away for a moment. So we had the it, same thing in, in Richmond, you know, we had like John Adams, Lincoln and, and, and John Adams. Adams. Yeah. so many other amazing things. Yeah, but uh, uh, so then talk to me. So, so then, for me, where, it was really, I mean, coming out of college, it was, it was either, you know, New York or Los Angeles. I mean, it didn't and, really, it, it's very hard to, move into the industry in a place like North Carolina, like you can do independent films and there's certainly a good crew base and everything, but in terms of the levers of, you know, power and like creative force, like it's really coming from Los Angeles and New York and between the two, at least for me, the cost of living in LA was a lot lower and there's just a lot more opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. And so then I saw you've done like the bachelor in American Idol yeah. So I started the first um, four or five years of my career. I, I worked in reality television. And when I went into filmmaking, I decided I wanted to start as an editor um, because I'd seen a lot, of, you know, a lot of directors that I admired, Spike Lee, um, Martin Scorsese, David Lean, like they began their careers as editors. And I think it's a really invaluable skill to have as a director. So for me, I, I decided, you know, it also was a way to make a living. It was a way to break an industry learn that skill, learn a lot from a lot of other directors. And, um, you know, when I got to LA, I, I, that's, that was how I broke in was, um, you know, working night shifts on, you know, reality television shows. Yeah. We all have to do, Hey, I got a podcast, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, so Alston, while, while this was going on, you know, I, I know you said you were five years younger. Were you, were you in Afghanistan? No. Um, I mean, that was the early part of Jute's career. So, I mean, I would have been finishing up high school and going through college. So I, would, I would come out and visit probably every couple of years. Um, what was your major then? You know, I, I, I'm always curious, like what is speech was, write? Creative writing? A, um, no, I was a government major. So political science. Um, oh, wow. Okay. I took, weirdly, I took several speech classes. We had a little speech department, one professor, and he was my favorite professor. Um, so I took a number of speech classes because I really like speeches for whatever bizarre reason. I never really thought the chance would present itself to be a speech writer because it's such an yeah. obscure thing. And, and like I was an editor at a magazine and literally one day out of the blue, I got an email from Rumsfeld's chief speech writer. And the connection was a trustee I knew at Dartmouth who had been Reagan's, one of his speech writers, and he had written the tear down this wall speech when he was all of 27. Yeah. Um, so I followed Jute's career um, from afar. And like, you know, certainly when he, reality TV is not really my bag. So like, it was cool. I knew of the shows, but when he got into like other shows that I knew or that I could go check out of the library before the days of Netflix, you know, it got pretty cool. Like I remember um, it was during, it was actually during exams one time, and I, we had gotten Battlestar Galactica, um, 
And no, was it Battlestar or was it? It was Alias. So we went in, like, one of my friends and I went and rented the DVDs and Jude was on the show. And we just started binge watching it. And it was the same deal when he got on Battlestar Galactica and I started watching that. I was like, these are just incredible shows. And really, you know, in that, like, fanboy kind of category, I'm sitting there thinking, like, I, it's really hard for me to conceive that my brother works on these shows and he edits them. Like, that's, that's incredible. And, and and Julius, you know, because I have a lot of friends that are editors. How were you able to pivot from editing to directing? Um, I was uh, all along. I was making my own um, short films and writing. Um, when I worked on Alias, I got the director of photography and an actor, and um, we had a brief hiatus when Jennifer Garner was having a, a baby in season five. Like they shut down the show for like a month and yeah. I convinced a bunch of people to go shoot a short film for me. So I had that as a calling card. And, um, when I was on walking dead, um, you know, I made my intentions known that I wanted to direct and I had this work and, um, I saw you did 23 episodes. How many of those were directing? I directed two and I edited a whole bunch more. So, wow. Yeah. And what was that like, you know, like finally getting that chance, you know, because The Walking Dead is, you know, probably one of those last remaining shows that's that's kind of started in the, like, well, shortly after 2010 is still going, you know? Yeah. No, I mean, it was a remarkable opportunity. I mean, I love the world. Um, the world of Walking Dead was really extraordinary. It was a great group of people. Um, what, what seasons were you on? I worked on it from um, season one through five. Okay, cool, cool, cool. So I know I, I know Burnthal a little bit. Oh, you do? Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. A, he's a great terrific guy. actor. And yeah. Great, really, really just extraordinary artist. Um, and actually, Alston was a. Um, yeah. I'll, uh, I'll let Alston Fun. tell that story. He was oh, like, t- t- tell it, tell it, Alston. Burnthal beat the daylights out of me when I was a zombie one time. I mean, not oh, his fault. I was trying to eat his brains and whatnot, but yeah. Um, you got an extra gig? Yeah, well, I was, I was in, I was in business school. So it's grad school. You can take time off. And, and Jude had been offering to try to hook me up because I was in North Carolina for grad school. It shot outside of Atlanta. So, you know, easy drive down there. And one of the episodes, he was close with the director. And so they like, he connected me. And it was funny because I was, I was like, I don't know. Should I bail on school and go down to do this? Like, I'm not sure. And sitting in the morning, looking in the mirror, like shaving. I'm like, wait a second. Like I can go be a zombie extra on walking dead. And I'm thinking about not doing that for class. Like get out. So I went down there and they like did me up in the full, like two hour. I which season it is, but it's when John Bernthal was like, he was trapped on a school bus and there's zombies at the door, like trying to get in. And I was like me, like right up front and the door's getting slammed on my thing. And, you know, they you're have licking, like, you're licking the blood with your tongue. Oh yeah, I'm licking the two. Oh, so you're an, you're an actor, man. Oh yeah. yeah. And so, but he he had like a knife butt because they digitally put in the blade. Yeah. So he was supposed to stab me in the head and like you know fake hold your punch stab, and I got clocked in the head with that knife butt. And I mean, I had like I had a nice big goose egg for a few days. It Did was he worth apologize? It. Oh no, he was so into it, and you would never like. I mean, it was awesome to see someone like work up close and just to be so into it. Like I would never say anything. I was like, dude, hit me as many times as you want. (laughs) 
Was this the episode you were directing, Julius? No, no, no. Oh, uh, that would have been great. So director Ernest Dickerson was uh, Ernest Dickinson was doing that. Uh, Dickerson. Um, it was, I think, season two around. I want to say episode ten, somewhere okay. in there. I saw. I've only seen season one, to be honest. But yeah. um, so then I'm I'm very curious. You know, when you when you get this amazing chance to finally hop behind the camera, you know, television is such a tough medium because the temporal format is set up in the pilot, and then the director essentially has to kind of come in almost as a technician and adhere to the visual standards and the color and the tone that's set by. I think in that case, Frank Darabont, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, so- I mean, I mean, it's a group effort, but I'd say certainly in terms of the look and the feel of, yeah, of yeah. the series, it was definitely set by Frank. And then I'm, I'm, when you get the chance to get behind the camera and, you know, so many amazing actors, Norman Reedus and so forth, was that your moment? You know, because like one of the reoccurring themes I talk about on this podcast is finding your voice. And do you feel like that, like, getting that chance to direct was like, okay, this is it. Um, I mean, I try not to place too much importance on any like one moment or even series of moments in my life. I try to adhere to the sin vibe of um, not getting too high or too low, like not attaching importance to the ephemeral nature of life. So I think for me, it was, I mean, it was certainly an, uh, uh, an incredible experience and I, I learned a lot and I, I grew a lot out of it. And I, um, it was very fulfilling. I'll say that. Um, so I'd say, yeah, I mean, it was, yeah, it was fulfilling and it was, um, you know, that the, the process of doing it was certainly exhilarating. Um, but you know, I find, I don't know, I find creative fulfillment in, so many different ways um, that that particular, I mean, that was an extraordinary moment and it was yeah. an incredible experience and I loved it. Um, but I've also, you know, I had just as much fun, but in very different ways, like with Alston, when we're, you know, doing everything ourselves, like making an independent film in Rhode Island, um, you know, so everything that- on our own and we don't have like the massive infrastructure of a, you know, big budget television series behind us. So that brings me back to the question, Alston and Julius, you know, Alston, you know, I imagine you were, you were spending quite some time traveling with these jobs, speech writing. So at what point, you know, do you decide to break away from that and you and your brother, you know, like, Hey man, let's go. Yeah. I had, um, so I was in business school, um, getting my MBA and coming out of that, I, um, I think I was, was, MBA was post speech writing or, or pre. Yeah. So I, I, go I got into business school when I was at the Pentagon and then I put it off for a year to go to Afghanistan. So I knew coming on the end of my um, year in Afghanistan that I was going to go to grad school, which is yeah. awesome and relaxing and fun and all those things. Um, so coming out of that, I think I was really at the proverbial fork in a road. You know, I was doing some work with some startups in North Carolina, um, but I always had this thought of, you know, Hollywood screenwriting. And I thought about it for years before. And, and I told myself, I was like, well, before going to pursue this, probably write a screenplay, right? See if you're any good yeah. at it, if you enjoy it. So I finally had some time and just made myself sit down and work on this idea that had been in my head for, you know, years. And 
you just never sit down and do it. And I found that um, I really enjoyed it. And so I came out to LA and crashed on Jute's sofa for a couple of weeks just to get a feel for the city. And that's when we started talking about like, hey, if we were going to make a movie, what would it be? And we started bouncing ideas around and we knew we knew it would be something genre. It would be contained. We kind of knew the rules for containment to deal with budgetary matters and everything. Um, because we, as much as we started going through the normal Hollywood process, once we got to the point of having a script, and in the meantime, like a couple months later, I moved out here. Um, you know, once we got to that point, we knew that we wanted to have a script that if the normal Hollywood process didn't work, we could go out and just make the movie ourselves. Yeah. Um, you know, you just go, it's kind of a, a rip, rip off of, um, of the social network, you know, you're yeah. going to make a movie, make a movie. Yeah. And I think, you know, now, you know, we've seen this with Sean Baker and Tangerine and, and, and others that, you know, uh, Greta Gerwig, it's, you know, especially as an actor, I really identify with what you guys are doing because, if you sit and you wait for someone to give you a chance, I'm going to say a hundred percent of the time, it just won't come. You know, sometimes, you know, people win the lotto and they're able to get things and get traction. But for most of us, we have to create our own opportunities. And that's amazing and critical that you guys did that. And with, with, with that film that you guys are talking about with happy midnighters. Yes. That, wow. Yeah. And and what was that experience like? Because like obviously I know as brothers it sounds like you guys were quite close, but you know when you're in the creative lab together and then when you're on set together, it can be a really intense experience. Especially you know you're directing and you're writing and and you got two different kind of departments coming together to create this cohesive thing. Was that a tough collaboration for you guys, or was it really just awesome? I don't. I mean. I'm not sure you. I don't. Talking. I'm not. I don't need any dirt. No, 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 no dirt. I, I, I was. Yeah. No, I'm just laughing. I don't think you'd find many people who have made an independent film who would say, you know, in retrospect, like awesome experience, okay, but who would say it was easy. And I think I went into it, and everyone's talking about how hard it is, how hard it is, how hard it is. I'm like, you know, we're pretty talented, smart guys, and a lot of people made movies before. How hard can it really be? I mean, that was so naive about that um i was also coming out of business school so i'm like how hard can this be and it's just it's so much work because there's no one else there and you have to do everything so um i was doing more of the financial legal technical producing stuff but Jew was doing a lot of that too and you know when we're actually on set like i mean we're just like Jute's out there negotiating our um our food contract with some random little Italian place in, in rural Rhode Island. Like, it's not like we went and got like the proper caterer for a film set. We went and talked to like a guy and Jute's like doing the financial negotiation. We finished and we're wrapping out our location. I'm not exaggerating. Quite literally Jute was scrubbing toilets because we didn't want to pay for like 500 bucks for someone to come in and clean the place. That's amazing. You you weren't above it. No. And, And frankly, after, all the, you know, sort of brain power that I was using to direct and make the movie, there was something cathartic about, you know, just spending a day or two days, I don't remember how long it took, you know, scrubbing floors, scrubbing toilets, cleaning. 
been there, man. I, I, I know how it goes. And oh. that's, that's amazing, Ben. And, and, and when you did that film, you know, I know IFC ended up picking it up, but was the goal to do the festival circuit? Like what, what was the intention or, you know, like. We, we did the festival. Yeah, we did festivals. I mean, the goal was to, you know, sell it. And, and we, um, you know, we went to a lot of festivals and then um, Alston was in, you know, he was really the one brokering the sell, like um, finding lawyers, negotiating with, um, you know, the various interested parties and, and pulling it off, which, um, you know, now it's available on Hulu. So. And IFC is no small company. Yeah. Midnighters. Oh, checked out on yeah. Hulu. That's amazing. I'm, I'm, I barely know you guys, but I'm so proud of you. And uh, so then I'm very curious when you, when you have that film finished, you know, obviously I'm sure part of you is like, wow, I just, you know, spent a lot of my time on that. Did you already have the current occupant in kind of your, both of your periphery of your brain? Or was that something that once this was all done, you started to develop? Um, it, it came later. I mean, there were, I think, a couple other projects we, we pursued both individually and collectively. Um, in the meantime, um, you're, you're also, an, sorry, I don't mean you're also a writer as well, Julius, right? I, I am, but yeah. you know, Alston's certainly the the more prolific, the more prolific writer. Um, but uh, we we had we had this idea and had bounced it around a little bit, um, and then I had been meeting. I had you know I knew Blumhouse because I had directed an episode of the television version the, of the, the purge. purge. I saw that. Yeah. And then I was talking to them about the end of the dark series and we put together um, a couple original ideas. And this was, I think we did two or three and this was the third one, third one's a charm. And this one um, was the one that they were really into. And, um, you know, it was really a synthesis of, of the two of our, two of our interests in the sense that I'm, I'm coming from, you know, the horror background um alston from the political side although we both have you know interest in those spheres and then we both also have a very strong passion for science fiction and i think this um you know this movie was the, the amalgamation of, the of all, all that yeah. comedy. that's amazing yeah that's so, so and cool. in the film there's you know there's a good amount of there's a sci-fi element to it um with the psychological treatment that they're using in the session in the asylum I usually find it pretty annoying when the host tries to summarize when I have the filmmakers available. So mm -hmm. for the viewers listening, could you summarize, you know, just uh, a brief bit about the plot so that they can check it out on Hulu? Sure. Austin, do you want to, or do you want me? You take it. You, you have um, this one down. I feel like. Sure. It's about a, uh, the film is about a patient in a, in say, a, a mental asylum who has no memory and he, begins to suspect through um, a series of psychological experimentation that in reality, he is the president of the United States and is being held in this asylum um, as part of a vast political conspiracy. Yeah. And, and Olsen, I'm very curious to ask you, having worked for the previous administration and then entering the chaos that we did in 2016, how much of that, if at all, entered into your kind of brainwave space when you were writing this? It enters into the the brain space, as you put it. I think it operates more below the surface. We um, we both feel that 
you know, movies that have too much of like a message they're trying yeah. to push across, they kind of like whack you over the head. And I think you, I think those movies, they don't work for me because too often the filmmakers, they lose track of like, I, you know, characters, arcs, all of that. So it's certainly playing in the background. Um, you know, it's about a guy who may or may not be insane, who may or may not be the president of the United States, who may or may not be trapped in a bunker under the White House, um, which as we saw, like, another president <laughs> visited that bunker a month ago. Um, yeah. yeah I, I wrote an article about it uh, in the Daily Beast, if anyone wants to check it out. Just oh, that's it. amazing. Wait, did you uh, get to go to the bunker? No, 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 no. <laughs> but, but I have I have eaten at the White House and the White House mess a few times. They have these little um, M&M boxes that have the presidential seal on them. They're pretty cool. So wow. always gets, if you're ever at the White House, ask for presidential M&Ms. That's the, right. theory. That's the main takeaway here. Um so, you know, certainly in, in the background and then the, the, in the movie, we have these sessions, which are kind of the mind deprogramming sequences. And they're in these, the form of these questions and answers. And there's some questions and answers that are, um, you know, relevant, you know, like the one that's repeated a few times is, do you think it's more likely that A, a patient, a mental institution will wake up as the president of the United States or B, the president of the United States would wake up in the mental institution and, you know, Look, that's that gets to our current situation. I think the more relevant thing is just when I think about it, it's it's really an institutional horror film, which are all about you know, you're trapped in this world where they're trying to destroy your agency and the powers that be are unthinking, uncaring bureaucrats who just the more you push back and try to prove you're sane, the more that proves to them that you're not sane. To me, there's something meta about where we are right now where like we're all kind of trapped inside or trapped in this bizarro world because of the pandemic and the people controlling our fate. I mean, they, they don't have our best interests in mind. Like no. quite clearly the, the government's response to this has been an abject failure and we're all held hostage to it. And there's really nothing we can do. And to me, it's like, that's institutional horror. Like you're yeah. trapped in a waking nightmare and you can't get out of it. And I, and I read that you guys edited this during quarantine. Is that, is that correct? That's true. I mean, we had a, a wonderful editor, a guy named Thad Nursky, um, but uh, we worked remotely with him. So we were in, um, in when did, Arizona. When, when did you finish principal? We finished principal, gosh, like March 2nd, two weeks before what, March 2nd. Yeah. Two wow. We we're really lucky. And the funny thing is our, our father um, flew out to um, Los Angeles to be there uh, the final night of, of shooting, which we filmed at the Nixon Presidential Library as um, wow. part of our Oval Office sequence. Um, and so he oh, was. Oh, so that's where that. I was wondering. I was like, how did you guys have the budget to recreate this? <laughs> yeah. It was, you know, if you need to rent a place, talk to, talk to Tricky Dick. Um, yeah. In, in, in Richmond, they have a White House set if you ever need one in the future. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. We were yeah. Actually, they were pricing it out, and the sets are incredibly expensive. And then we, we said, well, why don't we try the. There's two presidential libraries in, in Los Angeles. Um, Reagan. I, did, I didn't doubt it. I was like. And Nixon, of course, yeah. you know. You can rent it for the night. And so our father flew out and he was there for, for the night of shooting, which was really special. And then um, I think he flew back on a Wednesday. And I just remember after like the virus was starting to really tick up and then he left. And like later that day or the next day, 
they said, oh, they found somebody at uh, like LAX International, two baggage handlers. Uh, no, two. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, had it. Yeah. And we're just saying to him, you know, the stock market's tanking and like, yeah. you know, we're like, gosh, you got out right in the nick of time. And yeah. we had no idea that, you know, the world was going to basically grind to a halt two weeks later. So we were incredibly lucky to get the film in the can because, um, you know, the, the film, the next film that they were shooting as part of the dark that came after ours, um, I think they got shut down. What else? In like five or six days into yeah. six so days. Out of just six made it and they're still trying to get it back up. So yeah, we, we did it remotely, you know, um, Blumhouse was very supportive of, of helping us. Um, you know, there are a lot of technical challenges yeah. um, with this. I mean, I think the whole industry has, spend a lot of time figuring that out. But um, I think, you know, what's true historically with um, these kinds of disrupting events is they tend to accelerate um, technological trends that were already in place. So what would have happened over five years happened in the course of three months. I don't think we'll ever go back to, I think a lot of the things that have come come into play, certainly as far as post production goes, yeah, the film industry are permanent. I, I don't see why you're going to go back. Um, like a lot of you know businesses, people working from home, working remotely, like yeah, we're all things yeah. in place. And I think you know that's a lot of that's going to be permanent. I mean, certainly some of it will restart, but you know, from a filmmaking perspective, it's been very interesting to you know rethink the whole way that you know post-production works and production as well. Yeah. And, 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 I, and also uh, go ahead. Up. I was just say, and I personally am hoping that general meetings, the currency of Hollywood stay, stay remote because it saves hours on the roads every day. Oh, especially in LA, man. Oh my oh, God. Yeah. yeah. So brutal. And I, I, I'm curious to ask, you know, was it always July for this? Like, or did that? Yeah, it, it okay. was independence day. So the end of the dark, the yeah. an anthology, each film, so it's essentially each film is a different, you know, different writers and directors, right. so more auteur driven, but it's done with a television production model. So the crew is rolling over from um, episode to episode. Um, and each film, the, the unifying link is they're each based on a holiday. That's so beautiful. And then I, I'm seeing that both your names are on all these writing lists. I mean, do you guys have the next few scripts? you know, whether, you know, it's something that you're just going to sell or something that you're going to work on together. Um, we have a television show. Amazing. Can, can, can we talk about it? Mm, not next not, time. Next, next time. time. All right. I, I, I'm going to do that. Um, I'm, I'm curious then on, on a meta level, you know, when you're, when you're editing the current occupant, did you guys start to infuse things that maybe Austin weren't quite there in the writing because of the quarantine and the lockdown? Did some things get elongated or, you know, mm. because it, it's so interesting. It's hard to not view it in the lens of what's going on, you know, especially given that like July 4th, you know, was we're in the, cli- the uh, I, I don't even want to say the climax because God knows what's going to happen the second time around. But uh you know, while, while we're in the middle of this chaos, you know, did, did that play in even in a subconscious way? You guys think at all or, or no? Drew was handling the editing. So I'll let him speak to that. I, I, I mean, one point I would make since you're, um, I think your audience is a bit more sort of technically inclined and in how it's all put together. Um, yeah. You know, one of the most useful things for me as a writer 
was when we did our first movie and then I got to go, um, Jude edited that. So he had done like the rough cut and then I got to sit in the editing room with him while we went through and refined and changed it. And I just, until I had done that, I didn't really understand what you could do with editing in terms of shaping performances and story and everything. Like I knew some of it, pacing and whatnot. I also didn't really understand what he was doing directing at that point. So just that you're directing to get the footage that you can then have the flexibility to make what you want in the editing room and getting as much as you can. Um, and so like anyone who's writing, I would strongly encourage them to try to like sit in on edits and, and, and get an understanding of how that works because then you can start reverse engineering the writing to make it like more director friendly and to know like what you care about and what you don't, because you know, there's an old saying that a movie's made three times first, um, in the script, second in the direction on set, and then third in the editing room. And um, I'll let you talk to the actual editing process and what he sort of found and how he shaped it. I mean, it was just a lot of, it was a lot of work. Yeah. And we had yeah. two, um, we had a fad. I hope uh, you had good Wi-Fi. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah. it was okay. Um, we had a, uh, Thad was the editor, and then we had a fantastic um, editor, uh, assistant editor named uh, Freddie Brown. Um, and so it was really the three of us were, you know, navigating all the the technical challenges that that come with it. I mean, at a, a, you know, throughout the director's cut, because at that point you're just trying to get the, you know, the the all of it cut together, and then working with the the studio and the network on the, the their notes process. Um, you know, it was just a tremendous amount of work. I would say the benefit to quarantine was that there was really no, no distractions. You know, the only thing I, I threw myself into it um, for better or worse. Um, and I mean, that's all I did. I mean, I was working from the day the pandemic started. I mean, they shut down the state of California. I left two days later because I didn't want to yeah. spend the pandemic um, in a densely populated urban area. And then, um, went to Arizona, but I mean, the entire time I was working, I mean, what else in like 12, 16 hours a day, most of the time, something like that. Well, yeah, yeah probably not it, the healthiest thing in the world, but no, out of the definitely movie. Not. But it was an amazing film and I'm glad you did. And the current occupant is on Hulu now. And some final questions for you guys more about kind of where we're headed. As I mentioned earlier in the show, you know, independent movies now, you know, we're, we're dealing with like, you know, I, I, I don't, I'm curious to ask you guys, you know, is distribution in the sense of theatrical, is that something that's important to you guys as artists? Or do you think that is a dying uh, experience and things like video on demand and, and other things are going to be where that allows independent cinema to continue to thrive? Well, both in that, I would, you know, there's nothing that beats going to the theaters. Yeah. It's awesome. It's amazing. And to make a movie, you know, Midnighters, we saw on the big screen a few times and like the premiere of it, just in like a proper arc light theater. I mean, it's, yeah. it's an incredible experience. I think that theaters could die. Um, you know, this is, it was already an in, industry that was challenged. Yeah. And now we're like, this is the worst thing that could potentially happen to that industry. I think, I think you're absolutely right that you are seeing a, a squeezing out of everything from theaters. It's not a giant Marvel blockbuster and it's part yeah. of a, a trend. I think beyond independent film, I think it also really squeezes out like 
um, mature adult dramas, I think is the, the category I'd, I'd, I'd say, yeah. um, because, you know, there are movies that would be successful and are good films, um, but they don't give the big giant return on investment that, um, that these blockbusters do where you put in a couple hundred million and you make a billion. Yeah. Um, I feel like some of those are getting picked up by the streamers, Netflix and Amazon. Um, just because that's, that's, you know, that's where they're going to live. I don't see them really coming back to theaters, you know, independent film. Ah, I feel like it's still going to be people going out there and just making movies. Distribution for them is going to get tougher. Um, maybe easier. I don't know. It depends on how the streamers pick them up or not. All yeah. Right. It, it's just been tough for a lot of filmmaker friends of mine that, you know, had, had films that were going to premiere at South by Southwest and Tribeca. And now, you know, there's a gigantic question mark about when we'll ever get the chance to do, do a film festival mm-hmm. again, you know, and I hate to be crass, but you know, a, a digital film festival isn't quite the same experience as a, you know, going there and it's, it's not even not about the, re- yeah, mostly the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. But- and, I mean, go, film, go. film festivals to me, like the film festival tour we went on, and that was like probably the most fun part of making the movie. And some and festivals can be hit or miss; you never quite know till we get there. But yeah, you because know, you 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 meet other independent filmmakers who've gone through similar things, and they're really interesting, really fun people. And it's just cool to go, like you know, you go watch a screening, and people are really into it, and then like you know, then you just stand there and you get to talk to people and tell them more about it. And they're engaged and interested and those good parties, good people. And they're just like, they're really, really fun experiences in some ways like that almost made the whole challenge of making a film worth it. We also went to Europe, went to a few film festivals there. Um, in in Oldenburg, Germany, it was an awesome, incredible festival. We go to five or six over there. We went to one in Germany, Poland, United uh, Kingdom, London, London, yeah, um, Sweden, Ooh. and then Italy. And, uh, we won Italy, the Ravenna Film right. Festival, which was pretty cool. Yeah, <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Um, I'm so curious, you know. Then elaborating off that, because you know, a lot of people argue that the death of I don't want to say death, but the slowing down of independent cinema has trickled over to television. And in some ways, do you feel like that? I'm not trying to press you guys for information you can't expose piqued your interest in the medium because now I feel like I, I mean, and personally, in my own opinion, the television narratives are greater than most of the, let's just say public domain movie narratives. I, I mean, I, I don't know if I agree. I mean, I think fair enough, Tell, but there's so many bad shows out there too. I mean, there's just, it's, well, it's like, not sustainable because everyone's got content now, Yeah, but it's yeah. like art, some things captivate and compel the imagination and some don't. I mean, you go back a thousand years or 2000, they were, they were writing plays back then. And there, some plays were written that stood the test of time or you get a Shakespeare and, and there are a lot that didn't. And, yeah. um, I, you know, I think the format of things, it, it changes. Um, but you know, to go see a film in a theater, it's a, it's a beautiful experience, but you know, I, I, I liken it to if, if I'm going to hike to the top of a mountain and see a crystal clear sky in Northern Montana and see all the stars. Well, then I see the stars a certain way versus if I'm sitting in my 
house in Los Angeles and I'm watching, you know, a video of stars on my big screen TV, you know, it's a very different thing. Now, one is really convenient and I can do it in the comfort of my own home. I don't have to go anywhere. I don't have to do anything. And the other one is a, you know, pain in the butt. And, you know, over time, people's priorities change. And that's just the way, like, I think human civilization evolves. Subjectivity. You know, I think that's what it all comes. Yeah. But I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing quite like the emotional, there's nothing like the emotional experience of being in a movie theater. And I mean, what those did for me in my life when I was young and, and my mother would take, take, like when we see Return of the Jedi, when I'm in second grade, how it really transports you there. And um, I guess, gosh, I don't know, a year ago or you know, Christmas time, I, I have a niece, our middle brother has a, a daughter and she's three and I took her to see Frozen 2. And, you know, she dressed up in the costume and we yeah. went and, and sat in the theater. I just remember I was more interested in looking at her and the expression. Watching, it was yeah. just like the, that, which it's very different than, you know, sitting on a couch in a lit room and there's other stuff going on. And yeah, you're paying attention, especially kid, you're into it. It's totally different when you're in that dark theater and the sound and the music and, and the, you know, the scope of the picture, it just transports you there in a way that um, not a lot of like no other medium quite can. So I understand why, you know, filmmakers um, are, are so passionate about it. Um, Yeah. But there are certain like, you know, economic and like cultural realities that, you know, we face just like, you know, shopping malls, shopping malls were great. Like I remember being a kid and walking around the shopping mall and meeting your friends and that was this whole indoor thing. But, you know, it went the way of the the dodo bird, you know, it just things changed and it doesn't exist for better or worse. It's just just the way it is. Also, anything to add to that? Um, Yeah, I think. Two things. One would be, I think you mentioned like independent film and, and how it bleeds into television. I think the reality is you're never really going to have something called independent television because the budgets to do Breaking Bad or something like that. Any, anything yeah. really like yeah. eight episodes, 10 episodes, like you can't go scrounge that up and go make it on your iPhone and then go sell it. It's just like, it's so different than the business model. And, and the other point, I think just because one day our niece will grow up and potentially watch this in the game of who's the best uncle. I did take her to frozen Two a few weeks before Jude. And it was her first movie and we did dress up. And I, I did. I went, right. though, um, it was funny. Our sister-in-law and my, our other brother came, but mainly the shout, shout him out, shout him out. He's going to listen. Cindy and Burke, um, ah. <laughs> they, they came mainly because we didn't know how she would react to theater. Like, yeah. and, and I couldn't, you know, they didn't want, like, what if she has like a meltdown? It's obviously not good for for me to be the only one there. So, um, yeah, I think she actually probably had a better time with Jute though, because I think I was a little overwhelming the first time. Just, that, yeah. and was amazing. Like she's in a theater and just like curled up in the chair and, you know, it's a giant screen. And it was, it was almost more fun just trying to imagine like, wow, it's, this is such like a ceremony for me that like, I'll go to a theater any weeknight. I'm bored, whatever. I'll go during the afternoon if I don't have anything to do. And to see someone like, you know, building it up and saying, we're going to the movies for the first time. Yeah. 
That's so beautiful. Well, two final questions for you guys, so I can let you guys get about your day. But I'm I'm, I'm so excited, and I want to hear more about this TV show. And when it comes, I want to audition for you guys, especially if you sure. have a character with a good voice. I'd I'd love to collaborate. I'm a big fan. But uh, I don't mean to get too existential with these questions. One is not so much, but if you guys don't mind answering, what's keeping you inspired right now? If I'm being totally honest, I mean, it's tough. That's just every day yeah. is, is tough and it's up and down. And, um, you know, I, I'm working on a different writing project. And I think, like, I am engaged in it. And part of it's because I think it's a it's a real life thing. And so it's like telling other people's stories. And I think just that it's, it's getting a story out there that I think should be out there. But, um, you know, I, I don't, for me personally, it's hard to, um, it's hard to avoid the fact that it's just, it's a tough situation. You know, the, yeah. I, I unfortunately am a bit of a news junkie. I'm trying to cut Same. back. Um, but it's just, it's hard not to. And, you know, every day it's like, it's getting punched in the stomach. Yeah. You know, and, and so it's, it's hard. There's, there's nothing easy about it. So I don't have a great answer for that. No, I appreciate the candor. I really do. I, I would say, um, I'm, I'm a big, you know, history buff, as you probably gathered. Um, I got a good book for you right here. Howard Zinn's People, the History of the United States. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've never read it. I've heard great things. Oh, man. It's game changer. You know, if you look at history, um, there are always periods of, of turmoil and crisis and, and, and change and transition. And, um, if you can keep your head about it, um, those periods of time from a historical perspective, uh, they, they create their realignments of, of various existing structures. There's tremendous opportunity in, in yeah. chaos. Tremendous opportunity. And well, I did, think, um, yeah, you know, it's a very sad, you know, things happen, bad things happen to people, but, um, you know, in the end, it's all, it's all just the blink of an eye. I mean, this, this epidemic is horrible. It is. Yeah. It's all it'll pass. Yeah. I mean, our whole, our whole lives are like that. Um, but I mean, I, I agree. I mean, not to sugarcoat it. It's certainly, it's certainly difficult, but it, in the end, it is, um, you know, the only thing you can really control is, is what's up here is your perspective yeah. on it. That's and, really beautiful. Um, there's a great, one of my favorite lines, you know, I'm sure you've watched the show Fleabag, but um, yeah, one of the best lines is when she, she meets this woman that she gives an award to and they go to this bar and she tries to kiss her and the woman kind of rebuffs her. And then the woman, she's talking about like, what's the point of it all? And she's like, um, you know, it's, it's, it's other people, it's relationships. Like in the end, that's all you have. Yeah. And then f- final question. And I promise you this one is not bleak, but you know, for people like us that didn't come from, you know, LA or New York families or, you know, families that are in the entertainment industry and, you know, someone is listening to this interview right now and maybe they live in Washington or South Dakota and, and, and they really want to pursue this. Any, any words of wisdom, advice for them? Um, I think that, you know, you probably need to move to LA or New York and get into the business one way or the other, whatever the role may be, because that's how you meet people and you start building the connections in whichever 
craft it is you want to pursue, you have to start doing that in your spare time and you have to just become better and better at it every day. I mean, it's, it's like every, every aspect, whether it's production design or writing or directing, like it starts somewhere and you're only going to get better the more you do it. So you've just got to throw yourself into it entirely and, you know, figure out other ways to make ends meet and prepare for the long haul. Because I think most people that make it anywhere in the business, you know, they're called breaks or whatever it is. They're not like instant breaks. It's like a slow progression over the course of many years. And most people, it takes many, many years. And, you know, the ones that get somewhere, they outlast all the other people that flame out at some point. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. I, I would say to really think about, um, if there's anything else in life, if there's another path or, or, or that, that makes you happy, that gives you fulfillment, um, consider that because there's a lot of, um, you know, there's no guarantees in this. So much of it will be beyond your control. And the only way to have even a, a chance at it is to go all, all in, like yeah. fully all in and, be prepared like to, to sacrifice, like sacrifice a lot, if not everything, you know, and, and, and it may not result in happiness, but, but you have to, you have to actually love what it is you're doing. And you, you have to somehow disengage your, your own happiness, like from the, the results, you know, you have to actually yeah. enjoy the process and continue to, to enjoy the process and, and really think, think of in the long term. Um, and uh, it's, it's certainly not an easy path. And I, I just think, you know, there, there, there are trade-offs. There's yeah. things about, you know, that if you take a more traditional path in life, um, you know, you may find more happiness there. Um, it's just a question of like what really gives you fulfillment inside. Yeah. No, very fair. I appreciate that. Well, Julius and Austin Ramsey, it's been a true pleasure. And I'm so excited to see what you guys do next. You guys are crushing it. And I feel like the best is yet to come. And I know we're going to make it through this. And when we do make it through this, I'll see you guys in the audition room. And until then, you know, stay in touch and and keep writing and, and thank you for your service or, you know, keep inspiring because that's, you know, I think that's, that's what we do as artists. We keep each other inspired so we can steal. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, it was a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you guys. Much love, okay? If you like the show, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening.